0: Welcome to Wholehearted Recovery, where we encourage practicing self-compassion through eating recovery in a disordered world. I'm your host, Rachel Mann. Joining me today is Beth Riley. Beth is the founder of Riley Wellness Group. We're looking forward to having Beth with us today. Beth has a lot of experience working with eating recovery. We're going to focus on binge eating today because Beth has a book out. You can find her book, Breakthrough Binge Eating, on her website, by going to our website at www.wholehearterecovery.podbean.com. And you'll find links both to her wellness group and to her book as well. Please remember that this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It's not a substitute for treatment. If you feel that you need extra support, please seek the guidance of a trained professional. Today we're going to be talking with Beth Riley from Riley Wellness Group about binge eating. Beth has years of experience in treating eating disorders and working with binge eating, and she also has a book out, which we're going to talk about later. So Beth, tell us a little bit about you. How long have you been practicing? How did you decide to focus on eating disorders and specifically today, binge eating? Sure. Hi, it's great to be here today. I really appreciate your taking the time to spend with me today, Rachel. And I guess you could say I'm kind of a dinosaur this field. I've been practicing and in some form of uh, treatment and eating disorders for about 22 years, going on 23 years. Yeah, so I started off as a private practice therapist and um, I have a penchant for growing programs and ultimately ended up growing into expanding into uh, the first intensive outpatient program in South Carolina back in 2013 and then developed a partial hospitalization program here in Greenville. And now that I, I was acquired by a larger and now I am back on my own again. It's amazing. I like change. Tell us what led you to working with the eating disorder community. Well, it was a journey, just like I think most people I see have been through a lot of journeys. And mine started with, actually, I started my first career was in nonprofit and program development and marketing and promoting developing large programs, community-wide programs. And I went back to school at the age of 29 to get my master's degree. I had actually had an eating disorder in my teens and 20s and got help eventually when I was about 25 and eventually got treatment at 27. So kind of all the stars aligned. And when I got out of school, had my master's and I went back into the community thinking I was going to work in nonprofit again. And it just became my calling that I was going to work with eating disorders. So I started off as a private practice therapist. That's great. And you're living proof that you can recover. Absolutely. Full recovery is possible. I think that's a misconception that sometimes people think you're just going to always have to deal with it, but obviously you have moved past that. Yes, and I've worked with hundreds and hundreds of clients over the last 22 years, both as a therapist and as a treatment center executive director, and I've seen them recover. And one of the greatest joys in my life is, in fact, even a couple weeks ago, receiving an email from a former client thanking me for the fact that I had created the programs for her to be able to recover. That's great. And what a legacy for you to have so many people that you've helped. Well, it's been a joy. It's really been a pleasure. It's my passion. One of the things I wanted to talk to you about is people often think that eating disorders mainly include anorexia and bulimia. And I think they get a lot of the recognition, but... When it comes to binge eating disorder, it's starting to get more recognition, but I think people still kind of see it as not quite as serious as anorexia and bulimia or that it's simply a lack of willpower and self-control. Now, you and I know that those things aren't true, but can you explain to our listeners why it can be just as dangerous? Absolutely, Rachel. That is such a good point. And fortunately, binge eating disorder was... In the last, oh gosh, it's probably been five or six years now. It has actually become an official diagnosis, so that has occurred. It's in the DSM five, which is the Diagnostic Statistical Manual put out by the American Psychiatric Association. So it's official. However, that does not mean that it's recognizable or that it's considered legitimate in our society. In fact, one of my passions, and you might even call it an obsession, <laughs> I do tend to go straight into things and keep going. And that is to educate the community about the difference between obesity and binge eating disorder and the importance of recognizing binge eating disorder as a diagnosis. So anorexia and bulimia, even anorexia and bulimia aren't always recognized because the common misconception is still that someone who has an eating disorder is very thin, Mm -hmm. young female, probably a teenager. And so... That's one of the reasons why other disorders aren't taken seriously. And the majority of people with eating disorders actually are normal weight or above. In fact, the majority of people with eating disorders have binge eating disorder, And yes, about 2.6% of the eating disorders are binge eating disorder, whereas only one5 is a combination of anorexia and bulimia. Wow. So it is the most prevalent of the eating disorders. And one of the issues has been that because society has put such a huge focus on obesity prevention, a lot of the medical procedures and protocols are related to reducing weight and weight loss. And 30% of those that present for obesity at the doctor's offices are told to go on a diet and exercise right. more, and there actually have binge eating disorder, about 30% of those. Wow. And so that is actually counterintuitive and counterproductive and can be even harmful. Again, this is being prescribed by well-meaning providers, but most of them have not been trained. The majority of physicians have not been trained in recognizing or treating eating disorders. So they're lumping together obesity and binge eating disorder and actually causing more harm than good, because someone who has binge eating disorder and shows up at their doctor's office and is told, well, you just need to lose weight and go on a diet and exercise, and well, they can't do it. It's like telling an alcoholic to stop drinking and not giving them the right tools because they're not looking at the whole picture of the person, they're just looking at their weight. That makes sense, and I think that's a huge misconception in our society that what you just said about you think of someone with an eating disorder has to be that tiny person who looks almost skeletal, maybe, I don't know, but like you said, there's so many more people that are normal weight or above average weight that actually have eating disorders. Yes, and there are even more who have subclinical issues mm-hmm. with food and body image. So they're not even necessarily diagnostic for an eating disorder, but they or binge eating disorder, but they have a lot of dysfunctional or irregular disorder eating. And there are even more of those people. And that's one of the reasons why I decided to get into really expanding and writing a book about this, Mm -hmm. is also to address that population as well. Because over the years, I've seen so many, even just walking around society, there's so much disordered eating out there and so much negative body image that it's very, it's it's dangerous. What's happening is, you know, people are, because of this misconception, they feel judged, they're judging themselves. There's a lot of stigma around it, and it's certainly what I hear and what I've heard over many, many years. When a client has first come to see me, they feel, they think they're failure. They think that because society has recognized it as something that has to do with willpower, that they think there's something wrong with them. Right. And it's actually happening with really young kids now because of all the stigma around weight. And the focus on weight on obesity, And that's the thing. It's everywhere in our society. I mean, I know that's not really our focus today, but it is everywhere and it leads to a lot of the behaviors that we're talking about today. Tell us a little bit about some of the causes of binge. Eating. So it's complex because it is an illness. Um, eating disorder is, in fact, an illness, and a lot of people don't realize that. So the causes range from the genetic predisposition to, just like another illness, where you have a genetic predisposition to developing heart disease or maybe cancer or diabetes, then you have a genetic predisposition to developing a eating disorder. There also, it involves the environment. So, unfortunately, today's environment is very conducive to developing yes disorder. It also involves chemical changes that occur from certain behaviors, such as dieting, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later. But dieting actually changes your brain chemistry and can worsen. And actually, if you have already the predisposition to developing an eating disorder, then the combination of your environment and dieting can actually cause you to develop a full-blown eating disorder. Right? And I think that's one thing that people don't understand. They think someone that's binge eating is, like I said, out of control, lacking willpower. But it actually often comes from restriction, right? Yes. In fact, the cycle of diet, binge, diet is really the key here. And it's unfortunately a cycle that a lot of people start at a very young age now. It might start with maybe being a larger framed child in a more stocky build. They go to the doctor's office. The doctor tells them that their BMI is too high. The family starts to panic because they're worried about obesity, you know, for good reason, because of everything they've heard. And the next thing you know, the child is put on a diet and that can turn into hiding foods they really like and Mm -hmm. think they shouldn't eat. It also can interfere with your self-esteem. It can really um, decrease your self-esteem because it makes you think there's something really wrong with me instead of, you know, this is normal or I'm just a larger build. So yeah, it's a complex issue. And a lot of that stuff from childhood carries into adulthood. Oh absolutely. You internalize those feelings, those thoughts, those behaviors. There can be a lot of shame that goes with it. And unfortunately, too, in today's society, a lot of kids are getting bullied for being even just normal sized kids because the ideal is the thin ideal. Right. And so if they're a normal size, or let's say they're going through puberty normal pubertal development, including sweet section uh, 20 to 40 pounds, wow. and right now that's like walking through a mindset. Yeah. Uh, because if that happens and at that time and it's happening earlier, earlier for both males and females then you've got the combination of you know, the societal message that you should be thin and you know the fact that your body is changing you're getting bullied you're going to the doctor's office and they're saying your BMI is too high and not aware that maybe it's puberty so yeah it's kind of like the perfect storm. And even not just the blue- But but it happens at home. Sometimes it's in the form of bullying from parents, even if it's unintentional. But sometimes it's just parents attempting to make their child healthy. I've seen so many kids focused on what they're eating at a very young age. My little niece, who just turned three, we were at a family dinner and cooking out. I was pouring a little bit of soda. And she goes, that's bad for you. You shouldn't have that. (laughs) And she's three. I've heard kids at, I work at a tutoring center sometimes with school age kids. I've heard them say, well, we don't eat that at my house, or my mom doesn't let me have sugar, or whatever. So it's even happening at home. And again, usually out of health concerns, right? Absolutely. It's coming from, you know, there's so much information out there, and people, parents are really, I don't fault them because they're really trying to do the best for the mm-hmm. kids, but they're getting this information from sources that aren't considering the mental health aspects of this, and that's an unfortunate, piece. but I've oh my gosh, I can't tell you over the years how many children have come straight to our center from a health class or having just seen a video that, I mean, I remember one little boy who was 10 years old, and he came in and he said, well, my teacher told me if I eat fat and if I eat meat in particular, I'm going to get fat, have a heart attack, and die, and so in the wrong brain, that's kind of how I put it, the brain of someone who's more likely to develop an eating right. disorder. They're going to take that and literally run with it. And so this little boy ended up anorexic after wow. that. But then anorexia can also turn into binge eating after a certain point because those that are predisposed to overeating are not going to be able to do that for very long. And they're going to break through and start hiding food under their bed. And when they go, those kids, when they go to someone else's house that has mm-hmm. those foods that they really like and miss, they're going to overeat those foods right. or feel like they shouldn't be and feel a lot of shame around it. So that's the problem of setting us up. And it's it's setting society up to moralize food. And they're good foods, they're bad foods. And unfortunately, if you eat a bad food, then suddenly you're a bad person. And that goes for adults, too, obviously. I think with children, too, they're so much more susceptible, especially at school, because... They internalize that stuff. And the teacher is their model. You know, they, they think the teacher is telling them the truth on everything. And I'm not saying they're lying. I'm just saying their perspective may be skewed. Right. And they're not experts. Right. right. These exactly. are You're getting a lot of information in our society from people who are not experts. Right. And who don't understand that the war on obesity has casualties. And that is... For those that are predisposed, again, we talked about that genetic predisposition. For those that are predisposed to developing a eating disorder, then that kind of information is going to be taken to the extreme. That makes sense. Yeah, especially like maybe children that have tendency toward perfectionism. Yes. And yes. you feel like you've got to always do the right thing. Yes. And the temperament of someone who develops overeating, mm-hmm. binge eating, is going to be someone who is. People pleaser, Mm -hmm. uh, someone who wants to do the best they can and to you know make sure that they want to, they're they're usually stress sensitive, so they don't want to cause any conflict, so they're gonna go Mm -hmm. along with whatever they're being told to do. And they also have a hard time setting boundaries with other people. So what they what the other person says is what they're gonna do instead of thinking for themselves, well that might not be right for me. So yeah, a lot of that is part of that predisposition. Mm -hmm. So again, you can give kid or an adult that information and they're going to they're gonna run with it. Right. And just thinking from my own perspective right now, a lot of those things apply to me, even though binge eating is not the area I struggle with. So what about that? What are some of the similarities between I mean, a lot of people think they're two totally different ends of the spectrum, but what are some of the similarities between the reasons people binge eat versus the reasons that they restrict their purge? Well, that's a really good question. <laughs> and again, you know, we go back to A, people that are anorexic, bulimic, or other, other eating disorder diagnoses. And binge eaters, there is typically a genetic predisposition. There's a temperament that goes along with it. And you mentioned you know, high-achieving, perfectionistic personalities, and that can go along with it. That's people blazing, so right, of inability, a lot of them, um, lack of self-directedness. So it's like mm-hmm. if someone tells you what to do, you're going to do it, versus I know what's right for me. And then you have, again, the environment. You know, the environment, so the difference is if someone who's who's anorexic, the environment is going to trigger them to under-eat and restrict. Mm -hmm. And that has to do with their brain chemistry. So, because for them, restricting and even adding the exercise component to it causes them to feel better. So, Mm -hmm. a a quote-unquote normal person, I use that very lightly is not gonna feel better if they eat less. But someone who has the genetic predisposition and the brain chemistry to develop anorexia is actually gonna feel better because what it is is they have a tendency towards high anxiety and so the act of restricting and then adding restricting, adding exercise to that mix helps them to feel better. So it actually calms their over-anxious brain. Whereas someone who is a binge eater The same environment, let's say, you know, restricting, is going to cause them to binge eat. Because they, for them, their brain chemistry tells them that when they overeat, they feel better. So Mm -hmm. it's almost like for them, the drug is the overeating. It gives them a sense of calm because they have lower than normal D2 dopamine receptors Mm -hmm. in their brain. That's kind of like an alcoholic. Mm -hmm. So when they feel stressed, they're going to tend to overeat to calm their brains and so that is why they do that and does that make sense yeah that's kind of interesting because it's like the behaviors are different but they're kind of coming from the same place exactly and i want to really emphasize the role of stress here because stress is really the underlying i mean you have genetic predisposition but both of these populations all of the eating disorder diagnoses and populations are stress sensitive and when i say that let me give you an example. So if I was to drop a pin here in the office to a quote-unquote normal (laughs) ear, you would just hear a pin drop. But to someone who's stress-sensitive, it might sound like you're dropping a boulder. Okay, Okay. so there are going to be people who, when even changes that you think that most people might consider tolerable, like moving or changing schools or getting married or having a baby or getting a new job, or those are... Changes that are not going to negatively impact, and it may for a little while, someone who's a more resilient. But for these populations, because they aren't as resilient, they're going to be impacted, and they're going to look for ways to reduce their stress. And the easiest way to reduce stress is to either if you're anorexic, under-eat. If you're bulimic, you're going to, bulimia is very similar to binge eating. You're going to overeat, but then you're going to compensate by purging or getting rid of whatever, eliminating what you've over and if you're a binge eater, your stress relief is going to be go for that food. Yeah, that absolutely makes sense because when I was at my worst, I was going through a lot of stressful things in really every aspect of my life at that time. And that's when I would, and, and my go to was to restrict and over-exercise. And yes, that's what it would make me feel better if I had a bad day at school or something. Then I was coming home to do two hours of work out. I mean, it wasn't necessarily that plan two hours, but it was like, whether it's restricting or binging or whatever, doing it to the point that eventually you feel some relief. Exactly. That's what people are looking for. And, you know, one of my big pushes is people aren't even aware of how stress they are today. I meet with so many people, women, men, kids who have no clue. And I call it in my book, I refer to it as living in a state of high freeze. That people are functioning, everyone's functioning, but at a level that the stress is so high they aren't even aware of it, and so they're just having to find out less. I mean, it's a, it's serving a purpose, you know, all of these behaviors and it's not yeah. just the binge eating, because sometimes they go along with other behaviors too. You know, there's drinking, there's drugs, there's shopping, there are other ways of trying to numb yourself, which is really what it is, is trying right. to trying to find some relief somewhere, right? Understand that and, and the thought in our society is well, you know, this whole idea of you know self care, well self care is more than just going and getting a week a monthly massage or getting a pedicure or taking a few minutes out. It's gotta be you've gotta look at it from the perspective of more of a generalized perspective of how can we really, really take care of ourselves by reducing our stress level, not just for one hour a month. <laughs> you know, that just when you think about I have been incredibly busy you and I were talking about that earlier I've been working three jobs and on the road a lot and when I was talking to my dietitian, Christine I was like you know what food is not what I want it to be and she pointed out that my immediate reaction was to blame my food choices rather than figuring out how to take better care of myself so that those choices are easier to make you know and i hadn't thought about it that way but you're right i mean we get so busy we don't take care of ourselves one thing i wanted to ask you about the binge eating which goes along with what we were just saying so people that don't understand that behavior or eating disorders in general they think that the binging is out of pleasure but i would say like what we just talked about usually it's more about numbing feelings and feeling that shame or guilt and finding ways to get rid of it. What Absolutely. would you say to that? Absolutely. I mean, yes, but like I said, the pleasure is a quick fix, you know, quick pleasure reward that you yeah. get when you eat a large quantity of food or you have, a, have to graze all day. But the reality is that the end result is not pleasurable, that afterwards you're going to feel, you might even feel if, you're, if you have full-on binge eating disorder, you're going to feel distressed, you're going to Shame and guilt afterwards, and so, and then what happens is your self-esteem plummets. Uh, you have feelings and senses, a sense of hopelessness, powerlessness, and I mean, clients I've seen over the years, and, and it life-altering. It changes their relationships. It changes their perspective of themselves. Their body image suffers. So it's not. I would say it is not. Pleasure. It is for, right.
1: they, they can't help
0: it. They can't help themselves, just like an alcoholic is not necessarily doing drinking for pleasure, once mm-hmm. they reach a certain point. It's not for pleasure, it's for, it's a necessity. And I would say, what people also don't understand, regardless of which end of the spectrum you're on, it often leads to thoughts of self-harm or, or worse. Absolutely, absolutely. And, you know, it's very, what the mental state that you can get yourself in because of the, fact that you can't get out of the behaviors can lead to very dangerous consequences. And unfortunately, you know, in, in today's world, some of the body image, there are kids that are self-harming because of their bodies, because yeah. of the way they feel about their bodies, and the comparing that they're doing to others and the bullying they're, they're receiving. But that goes the same for adults. Especially, there's so much sizism and weightism in our society that's kind of one of the last discriminating, well, I'm not saying it's the last, but it's very prevalent in our society. And so just feeling, just walking around society in a larger body or knowing that you've done something that is not good for you when there's such a focus on health and wellness, and you're walking around knowing that you're you're eating too much or not eating the right things, that's very, very stressful. And then it's hard to find a way to go about. that. Very hard, because again, people don't understand, a lot of people don't I see I have clients come to see me who feel so much shame around that that mm-hmm. they don't even want they don't even want to acknowledge it or go there. Well, and the idea of self-harm, maybe not to the extent of suicide, but but self-harm, you know, like cutting or whatever people might do, it kind of goes with the same reasons I think that I would ever exercise. It's mm-hmm. easier to feel that physical pain mm-hmm. than to deal with what's going on inside. Mm-hmm. It really mm-hmm. is a sign. Extreme distress, and that's how it shows up. And it's really you know, they need help. If you have that, if you're going through that, and you're experiencing any of those behaviors, exhibiting any of those behaviors, you need help absolutely. Yeah. And the problem is, again, there's just so much stigma around mental health in our society. Our focus is on obesity and weight, but not still there's not enough focus on on the normalization of having a mental health issue, and more and more. In fact, there have been more studies showing that especially young people are having more severe, more episodes and just more, there's more severity with anxiety and depression and suicidality. So that's the real issue is reducing that stigma. Right. Yeah, and I think that's one of the obstacles for people deciding to get help in the first place is the stigma, the shame. I think maybe there's even more of that for binge eaters, maybe not, but... But I think because of, again, they're probably are they're often normal size or maybe above average. And so it makes it hard to admit to someone that you need help or feel like I should be able to fix this or just the, the way it's perceived versus anorexia, let's say, in society. You know, if someone's anorexic, it feels like or it seems like people are more willing to say, yes, that person needs help. But if you're binge eating it's almost like, oh, come on, just use some self-control. Even though both people need the help, there's so much more stigma, I think, for someone who's binge eating or overweight or whatever. Well, I agree, and actually, unfortunately, there are studies out there that show that healthcare providers are very, there's a lot of stuff, in fact, the Yale Fred Institute has done some studies on healthcare providers and the discrimination that they place on people of larger size. And so our society, again, not all eaters are of larger size, but the perception is that if you're overeating or your eating behaviors are not optimum and you're not healthy, you have healthy eating behavior. It's your fault. And there's something wrong with you and that somehow you have failed and that you are a failure. And that's, you should be able to fix it. and that's the message that they that, that people who have these problems, the overeating problems internalize. So tell us let's shift gears a little bit. Sure. Let's talk about the types of overeating because sometimes I think we tend to throw them all in one category. So let's talk about the different types. I'll read out the types and then you just tell us a little bit about each one after that. You listed types as binge eating, compulsive eating, stress induced eating, night eating, and food addiction. So tell us a little bit about each of those. Okay, so first, what I want to clarify, and this happens because I've I've seen a lot of women and men over the years who come to me and they say, well, I don't really identify with one type. So it is possible that you could have a variety of these and that that, that, that you are not just one. However, binge eating disorder is a specific type. So for example, that is an actual diagnosis and that means that you are binge eating, you are eating large quantities of food in a short amount of time, at least once a week, I said that for three months. So that's a diagnosis for binge eating disorder. You also, the two characteristics that are very important to recognize are it feels out of control, there's a loss of control around the eating, and there is distress and often guilt and shame that goes with that distress. Mm-hmm. So that's binge eating disorder. Sometimes I have people come to me and say, "Well, I'm a binge eater," and it also is very subjective because someone's binge could be not necessarily a binge. They might think they're binging if they're eating, with, you know, a few extra carrots or if they're eating a piece of cake. That could be, but that's not a binge. A binge is a large amount of food in a short period of time. And I think that's a good point. I think mm-hmm. as a society, we tend to throw that word around, right? So then, compulsive eating that would be more like someone who's a grazer. Okay, so you're keeping food. Let's say you're at work and you have a supply of food at your desk, or you go back and forth to the break room and grab a donut, and then you go back in an hour and grab another one. And this is an attempt to manage negative mood state. So if you're down, or you're tired, or you know, you're having a bad day, then that's what compulsive eating is. And you're going to kind of do it all throughout the day. And the compulsive It, you'll hide food, you think about food a lot, so there's a lot of thinking about food and weight. You spend a lot of time and money purchasing food, which so would a binge eater, so that's where you know, those kind of are similar. Then when you are someone who is a stress-induced eater, it's mainly related to stress, so it's not necessarily depression or anxiety, but it's stress. So you're gonna, like you were talking about when you were under a lot of stress, you would, you would go towards that over-exercise. Well, that same person who's having a lot of stress at work one day, you're going to go to the food. Because certain foods actually reduce your stress level temporarily, like we had talked about, especially mm-hmm. some of the more hyperpalatable foods like sugary, salty, high-fat foods, the combination of those. And then you also asked about, what was the other one you asked about? Night eating. Night night eating. Okay, yes. so there's night eating syndrome, which is a diagnosable mm-hmm. disorder. And that means that twice a week, at least twice a week, you're eating... The majority of your food in the evening at night. You're skipping meals. Well, actually, you're skipping. You're skipping eating four times a week. But then you're overeating. I meant to say that differently. You're not eating before noon four or more mornings a week, and then two times a week you're eating a large quantity of food in the evening after, let's say, after dinner, and just mm-hmm. keep eating, keep grazing. A lot of times they aren't even aware they're doing it. They might wake up in the middle of the night and keep eating more, and this has to also with night eating comes insomnia, so those two together. And typically someone has a mood disorder when they are a night eating. A lot of times what I see is a high anxiety person, and they're not dealing with their stress during the day, so that's how they medicate at night. And then how about food addiction? So food addiction is controversial. There are some studies to show, in fact, the Yale Institute does show that food addiction is a thing. However, what they really have shown mainly is that food addiction is related to those hyper-palatable foods. It's not necessarily just sugar. A lot of people come to me and say, I'm addicted to sugar, I've got to stop eating sugar. Well, of course, when they stop eating sugar, they end up overeating sugar at some point and binging on sugar. But the food addiction seems to be more driven by those hyper-palatable foods, the combination Mm -hmm. of the sugar, fat, and salt. I think, too, like you said, that there's some controversy there. That's another one that maybe doesn't get thrown around as much as... Binging, but mm-hmm. built the word, but I do hear it at times. And I think most of the time it's more about we're restricting so much, we're not allowing foods. And so then eventually we give in to those. And that's where there's a fine line. If someone has binge eating disorder and you completely stop eating sugar, you're going to end up overeating that sugar. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's just the way it's, your brain is going to be craving that sugar and eventually you're going to eat it and binge on it. So I don't recommend eliminating food groups as part of your diet plan. That's where I'm seeing a competent registered dietitian who works with eating disorders and should be a part of your overall treatment plan. That's interesting, too, talking about eliminating food groups. I was talking to a friend yesterday about how, you know, years ago it was, okay, everything's got to be low-fat, and it has morphed into everything's got to be low-carb, whereas your body really needs both of those things to function. Right. And particularly, again, yes, I would agree. You need all your nutrients and, you know, all these fad diets. You know, what we know about dieting is the more you diet, the more weight you gain over time, the more it messes up your metabolism, it changes your brain chemistry, it changes your hormone makeup. So it really wreaks havoc on you, but in particular, if you have struggled with binge eating. Yeah. So let's, Uh, let's talk about that. Let's talk about those physiological components. What are the things... That are affected by the binge eating. Okay. Well, first of all, binge eating can lead to some physical symptoms, of course, which would be if you overeat and gain weight while you're doing it, or you're eating a lot of sugar, fat, high fat foods, you might end up with diabetes, you might end up with cardiac complications, as well as, but the actual act of dieting can lead to a change in your hormones. And so we have several hormones that are in play here. One is which is your hunger hormone, and that's what that's how you know you are hungry. And when you diet, your hunger hormones actually unfortunately increase, and so you become hungrier. That's why it's really hard to stay on a diet. So, your body is telling you you need to eat more. exactly, exactly. It's your body's way of taking care of itself. And then we have another hormone called leptin, which is your body's way of regulating fullness, mm-hmm. and so. With leptin, again, when you diet, the unfortunate result is your fullness hormones decrease. So you don't feel as full. And so again, you need more food and you're craving more food to find satiety. So those are really what goes against you when you're going on a restrictive diet. And that's why it's really hard to stay on it. Because your body doesn't know you're doing this on purpose. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. Then other hormones that play are cortisol. So, again, a restrictive diet is going to increase your cortisol, and cortisol is your stress hormone. Okay, so here's the conundrum with that. Restrictive diet increases your cortisol. Increased cortisol increases your hunger level for things like high sugar, high fat foods. So, you actually crave those foods more. And you put that on top of regular daily stress from our crazy lives that we have. Exactly, exactly. And so, And then here's another piece that is interesting is dieting itself. There have been studies to show that it actually increases your cortisol levels because all that focus on numbers and weight and worrying about what you're eating and how many steps you're taking and how much exercise you're getting, it actually increases your stress level. So then that increases your cortisol level, which causes you to want to overeat. It's a vicious cycle. Yeah. Yeah. Another thing that I've found, a lot of my clients over the years have an undiagnosed polycystic ovarian syndrome, and that is related to your hormones. And what happens with PCOS is, that's the acronym for it, is you might have symptoms of it early on, usually in puberty, like irregular menses or cravings for sweet foods and high fat foods and you gain weight in your midsection and it's hard to lose that weight and so that sets you up again for thinking there's something wrong with you feeling like you're a failure and then you start dieting and you can't because all these other mechanisms kick in so it's an un kind of a silent trigger for an eating disorder and i find a lot of women that i see later in life have not recognized that they have PCOS. So it's a good thing to ask your physician about. They can do tests for it, and you can get medication to help you with it. That's interesting. you put in your notes, too. I mean, it even affects our brain chemistry. Absolutely. Again, what we know is that dieting alters your brain chemistry. And again, because it's not natural to be restricting and starving yourself Mm -hmm. and so your brain i've seen people who become more obsessive they actually it triggers more obsessive behaviors in them because they have malnourished brain if you think about it if you are not nourishing your organs that's going to impact your organs well your brain is an organ so if your brain isn't getting the proper nutrients let's say you're you know restricting most of the day and then overeating at night well that's an insult to your brain Mm. And over time, it's actually going you know, to change, alter brain cancer. The good news is, this is all treatable and curable. And so, it's just recognizing and understanding that you have a problem and getting the right kind of help for it. When I was interviewing Amber Darmo, therapist at Reading Counseling, Thank I you know, her, I know her well. Her her counseling. Counseling. <laughs> yeah. Yes, she mentioned go Google the image of a mountain brain mm-hmm. versus a healthy brain and that was really eye-opening because you don't think about it affecting your brain and even with brain chemistry you don't think about it affecting the visual aspect of your brain what it looks like the shape and,
1: and so what's interesting is people don't
0: understand that that can happen for people who are binge eating or people who are in larger bodies right because they may not be nourished either i mean i've seen people in larger bodies like well there's no way i could be malnourished I look yeah. at me Absolutely. And it has nothing to do with how you look. Again, it's like most people with eating disorders have normal sized or above normal sized well again according to eat BMI, so I'm not gonna get into that because what is normal is normal for each everybody has a different expectation for what they should weigh. But that's the problem is they think that they couldn't have malnourishment and weigh when they, they do. That's just stuff we don't realize yeah. And outside society doesn't take that into consideration, definitely. Let's talk about the role of stress We've mentioned it a little bit But I don't think we hit everything we have listed here So let's talk about that I tend to get off track <laughs> know, right. Okay, so we did kind of talk about the impact of dieting on all of that mm-hmm. Is there anything else you want to say specifically well, about that? exercise So what people don't realize is that they are doing exercise That they detest and that they dread mm-hmm. And that makes them miserable Guess what? That also increases your stress level Which increases huh. your cortisol which kind of does. It kind of does. Yeah, it kind of thing. does. And then you get more hungry. People are like, oh, I get so hungry after I exercise. But part of it is, again, you maybe have increased your cortisol. And so I have, had. I mean, if you hate going to the gym and exercising with, you know, people that are like uber fit and you you, know, you feel less than or you feel, you know, some people feel traumatized at the gym. Mm-hmm. They just feel like they're being judged or they're judging themselves. Or, right. And so that's going to cause stress. So I, I recommend that people really look at what do you enjoy, you know, do something you enjoy. And I found some of my clients, they find, oh, I used to like riding bikes, or I used to like, you know, swimming and maybe finding a water aerobics class, or I used to like being in the woods or being in nature. You know, there's just so many things that they don't realize. like Zumba or dancing or ballroom dancing, kayaking. What do you love? And do that. If you love going to the gym, great. But if it's causing you stress, then it's probably counterproductive. That's a good thing to think about because, again, we think we're being healthy by exercising, but you're right. If your head's not in the right place on that, then it's not healthy. Also, you probably aren't going to keep it up. That's true, too. And so, you know, the whole thing with all of this is if you aren't aware of what gives you pleasure, what truly gives you pleasure, and I'm not talking about the food, because that's not really, I mean, food should be pleasurable, but a lot of women that I've seen, a lot of men, they just aren't really in touch with what really makes them tick. Mm -hmm. And so they're doing things, their life is about doing for others and constantly doing things that make them miserable, then that is stressful. And so I really encourage people, I mean, I know, know you have to go to work and all that, but to really try to look at what do you value in your life and what makes you authentically happy and try to look for those things to do and to make that part of your life. Yeah. And I think that would be a huge mind shift to find movement that you enjoy and makes you feel good, where it's not about losing so many pounds, or burning so many calories, just make it about, let me go do something that makes me feel good, and it'll some of the stress that I'm dealing with. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> Instead of adding to it. Yeah, I mean, nature, as we know, you know, that's a big one. So doing something in nature can be mm-hmm. very healing. So even taking a walk with friends. Some mm-hmm. people, for them, it's better to have a social activity, to mm-hmm. go out and meet people and just walk in the neighborhood or, you know, go for a little hike in the woods around your neighborhood. Or yeah. I even recommend, you know, if you're at work and you're stressed, just get outside. Yeah, walk around. I used to do that in my old job. You know, just walk outside into the parking lot and look at the trees. You know, uh, notice the birds. Nature can be really healing in that way. I agree with that because I like to go to the gym to do a little swimming, a little mm-hmm. yoga. But if I want to do something like ride my bike, I don't want to go in that room. But there's a reason. Okay, so I used to get obsessive about the elliptical and. One time when I was on the elliptical, I'd been on there like an hour and a half. And I'm texting my friend and she's like, get off and go home or I'm coming up there. So I took a break from that with all my exercise issues. I took a break from that and I decided, you know what, let me try it again because I could do that and then I could go get a swim in and that would feel good. Well, I got in there on that elliptical and realized I don't like this. It's not fun. It's boring. There is a reason there are 27 TVs in there. I would much rather just get outside, go for a walk, like you said, enjoy nature, pay attention to your surroundings, sights and sounds. That is so much more soothing and enjoyable than let me just go pump out some rounds on the bike or the elliptical or whatever while I watch some TV. I think your point is so well taken, Rachel. It's about being aware. And so when you went back, you mm-hmm. became aware that you really didn't like it. Yeah, I thought was, I did. Right? But and that's the way a lot of people are living their lives. Is they yeah. aren't aware of what they like, what they don't like. And so that causes stress it for them. It was amazing because I was thinking I can add this back in here and there when I need something quick. But I really did not enjoy it. You know, we get caught up in what I should do. And I still have trouble with that a little bit because I told myself when I went in there, that if I don't like it, I'm going to leave after a few minutes. My original plan was 30. And so after five or 10 minutes, I'm like, well, I'm already a third of the way through. And I kept doing it. I did the whole 30 minutes. Looking back, I should have just walked out of the room. It wasn't something I enjoyed. And I should have just went and found something that was more pleasurable but it's hard to do that once you get caught up in it it's hard to do it and that's where the brain has something to do with it especially when it's perfectionism. this is what I plan to do this is what I'm going to do and that's the whole thing like the whole 10,000 steps thing which isn't actually even legitimate they found they've done some recent research uncovered that it was started by some company in Japan that was trying to sell pedometers but there was Mm -hmm. nothing to say that 10,000 steps was actually any health gold standard so you have to be really careful about what you hear out there because a lot of this is started by companies that are trying mm-hmm. to sell a product yeah, and then that's people where a lot get that number in their heads of mm-hmm. uh, 10,000 and I've known people that have done some pretty crazy things to try to reach 10,000 steps in a day yeah. and that again that's stressful yeah you know, if you're if you're focused on a measurement on a number on a goal like that that's outside of yourself that's not mm-hmm. about what's really going on inside of you or or what you really connect with, then that's that you're measuring yourself from an external source. That's like a form of objectification. It doesn't even work. Right. And we we talked about bullying. Well, you're allowing something on your wrist or even your phone to bully you constantly every day. It's like a coach yelling at you. and You already have enough going on inside of your head probably telling yourself I should be doing this, I shouldn't be doing that, you know, what's wrong with me? So yeah, I agree. Yeah. You don't need that. No, I, I absolutely agree. I did one little aside on that. I had one of those that you had the option to either wear it as it is and it would measure vibrations in your wrist mm-hmm. or you could wear it with a strap around your heart and of course the strap was more accurate. Well, I found that if I wore the device without the strap it wasn't as accurate, so it wasn't telling me that I got to that 10000 and getting the little fireworks and whatever, when I know I did. But I felt like I had to wear the strap every day, which is not comfortable. We don't want to be taking our worth, our value, from a piece of equipment. That really said at all. <laughs> so let's talk about some of the essential tools for overcoming overeating. What are some ways that we can shift those behaviors? Okay, well, the first one we're going to say, which again shouldn't be a surprise at this point, is stop dieting. Uh, yes, yeah, got to stop dieting. Now, I I'm not think saying that's, hard that's for people. I'm not saying that's easy. I mean, right. I work with clients for many, many years, and it's a process, and it's a letting go, mm-hmm. and it's a trust. I was working with somebody the other day, and she's really struggling. She missed her diet because the dieting is the quick fix. The dieting right. is kind of like a high, a temporary high until it cra- until you crash. So it's that's where you know working with someone who. really can help you through that process can help you deal with the grief of letting go of that and the trust. And by that same token, you're talking about trust. One thing I had to tell myself over and over, and one of my very good friends that has helped me through my process, she was constantly reminding me, trust the professional. Yeah, as long as you get with professionals who understand the complexities of working with eating disorders and body image issues and overeating mm-hmm. and exercise addiction and because exercise. there are a lot of professionals out there that have their own issues with it. Mm-hmm. And You're so right. they can actually exacerbate the problems. So that's where looking to NIDA, the National Eating Disorder Association website, is going to be really helpful in finding you know, a good professional. That's where it's very important to find mm-hmm. the right person. So the other is going to be, when I'm touched on this, is really the first step is increasing your awareness of what is going on you know where you are in this process what has led to what for you what are these behaviors doing for you because there's a function for them they're serving a purpose in your life and helping yourself to kind of let go of your own judgment towards yourself and working on forgiving yourself oh, that's hard. because oh, yeah. it's all hard because most of my clients for so many years have been beating themselves up yelling at themselves constantly about why there's such failures and Why didn't they get this sooner? Especially women that come to me in middle age or older, you know, I should have worked on this earlier, you know, what's wrong with me? So again, that's a whole process as well. But stress management is going to be a real key in this journey. And as I've touched on and emphasized, so really working on some significant ways of reducing your stress. And that, again, is not going to be a weekly pedicure it's going to be in analyzing your entire life and looking at what am i doing is causing stress how is that stress triggering these behaviors so it's a form of again just increasing awareness and then learning the tools to help you manage your stress on a real level it's Mm what i call it real self-care and so if you're working with a professional that's going to look like setting boundaries with people Or reducing your work hours or having conversations with your boss that are maybe challenging. Maybe you want to practice those conversations (laughs) before you have them. But you know, learn to be more assertive, learning to to take right, take time for yourself rather than taking on everybody else's problems, maybe reduce some of those. But again, this is process. This all takes time and it's not a quick fix. But the good news is once you have really gotten to the core of the problems and the root of what's stressing you and really come up with some strategies, this is a long-term fix. This is the mm-hmm. long-term solution that will help you. I really encourage people, you know, to focus on their feelings and on their emotions versus on the numbers and the weights and the measurements. Um, I think that part is yeah. very hard as well because part of the reason mm-hmm. that we're focusing on some of those other things is because we don't want to deal with the emotions and the feelings. And we haven't been taught. how Luster to do too. Them. And so a lot of these behaviors are an attempt to numb yourself from these emotions. And so I wish in school, in addition to being taught math and reading and all that, that we were taught how to cope with emotions and that all emotions are normal and okay. But unfortunately, that's not the way it is. It's, you know, they're good emotions, they're bad emotions. And so we tend to want to eliminate the bad ones when they're all legit and they all have a place. Now, of course, one of the main solutions, and what I primarily want people to focus on initially, is a pattern of regular eating. So, we want them to get into a structured eating because most of the time, people, when they first are working on solving their problems with overeating, their eating patterns are very erratic. You know, they've either been dieting or they've been restricting and binging or did a lot of skipping of meals. So, that's one of the things that you want to work on, again, probably with a professional, is setting up a pattern of regular structured eating because your hunger hormones are all out of whack, your fullness hormones are all out of whack. You can't really start off. And I know there's some people that would disagree, but the evidence in my world shows and what I've seen personally and professionally is that intuitive eating is very challenging, almost impossible when you first start off with recovery from an eating disorder. Because of the fact that your hormones are out of whack. You don't know when you're hungry, you don't know when you're So that will take time. And by establishing this pattern of eating regularly, eventually you'll be more in touch with your ability to eat intuitively. So I'm more focused on eating regularly, give yourself permission to eat all food groups and to really give yourself, when you do eat, try to be more mindful. And that's a process too, that can't come all at once, but creating more of a relaxed, calm environment when you're eating, putting aside the electronics, again, a challenge. This all takes time, so I wouldn't expect someone to suddenly be able to do it. Even just finding those hunger cues again takes Again, time. that takes time. So I wouldn't expect that you would have those right away. And again, I wouldn't focus on that. Mm-hmm. I would focus more on eating regularly. And eventually, the more regularly you eat, the more your metabolism and your hormones normalize, and then you will be able to find those hunger cues. You know, another key component, again, we talked about is self-care. And again, so that's about really getting to what works for you, what makes you feel good. Another thing is going to be working on what I call body neutrality. I don't think, and what I've seen over the years, is people trying to love their bodies right away, which is kind of impossible if Mm -hmm. you've been hating on your body for as long as most of my clients have. I like to work towards something called body neutrality, which is just learning how to kind of be okay with it. Yeah. Maybe, and there's a lot of tools and techniques you can learn to do that, and eventually you might love your body, but that's not going to happen overnight, and it may never happen. But at least to come to terms with your body and be more neutral about it. So, for example, Instead of hating on your thighs, being able to look at your thighs objectively and say, well, my thighs actually help me to walk. My thighs actually, you know, help me to get places. Because it's really hard to go from the extreme of, I hate my fat thighs, they're ugly and they're gross, to, oh, I love my body. So I really try to help people again through this process. And learning to appreciate your body itself, like the Mm -hmm. example you just gave. Yes. And again, that's not going to happen overnight. I'm sure for you that was a process. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And again, we talk about enjoyable movements. So trying to get at what you might enjoy. Again, that's going to be hard too because you don't know probably. And sometimes looking at what you enjoyed as a child can be helpful. You know, another part of this too for people that might suffer from depression or anxiety or mood disorder or something like ADHD or OCD is managing those comorbidities because there's a lot of comorbidity, which means co-occurrence of these other disorders. And if you have one of those, and that's contributing to your overeating, to your binge eating, then seeing a professional for that is going to be really critical if it's not being managed. I mean, you may need medication, you may need some intervention for that, and that's okay. And unfortunately, again, the shame, the stigma that goes with that, but it, it could be part of the problem. I mean, a lot of people have these disorders, have these co-occurring issues. Okay, so let me ask you this. I've heard The suggestion of distraction, which I can see the validity in using certain distraction when you're having disordered thoughts, maybe binging thoughts, whatever, take a walk, something like that. And I can see the benefit of that. But I've also seen articles that suggest that when you do that, you're not actually dealing with the feeling. So what are your thoughts on that? It's a and both or both, or either or, but there is a place for distraction because, and here's how I use it. For example, let's say you tend to be someone who comes home at the end of a workday and you eat dinner and then you keep eating. You don't realize it, but the stress of the workday has caused you to need to find a way to find some relief. And so what I recommend people do is have a plan for after you eat. If you typically overeat after dinner then you're going to need some kind of distraction in order to be able to break that habit. It may be, okay, I have a specific plan for what I'm going to do after I eat, and that is I'm going to call a friend. I'm going to get outside and be in nature. I'm going to do a crossword puzzle or do a mandala, which you can color in. So that's where distraction really comes in handy. Or let's say you find yourself, and this is where really knowing and learning what your patterns are. And you do that through a form of self-monitoring. In fact, you can go on my website and I have an awareness tool that you can download mm-hmm. and begin to start recognizing what it is you're doing and what leads to what. Then you can put in a distracting activity. So like you know Thanksgiving is a triggering time for you or being on a holiday with your family. Then you would say to yourself, okay, I'm gonna have a specific plan for right after the Thanksgiving meal, I'm going to get up. I'm going to ask someone to come with me. I'm going to go outside and do a 10-minute mindful walk just to get out of the house. So I think there's a place for it. Now, that being said, if you're always in distraction, then you're not in connection with your emotions. And Mm -hmm. that's eventually going to lead to that cycle again. You want to balance it. At some point, you've got to do it. It's a combination of mindfulness and being aware of your emotions and allowing yourself to have those feelings and learning how to manage those feelings and the thoughts. I don't believe that you can just change the way you think or change the way you feel. In fact, I don't think you should, because that's your body's way and your spirit's way of telling you how you're doing. But you want to learn how to manage them better. And that's where good therapy or good tools can help you do that. So if you're having that feeling, which you're going to have, you're going to be angry. Okay, how do I manage that anger better? What kinds of tools can I come up with to manage it better so that I don't go towards some type of Behavior to relieve that anger, good advice. Were there any other strategies you wanted to mention before we move to long term success? People may not want to hear this, but I do believe in exposing yourself to the foods that you tend to be most triggered by. So, for example, you know, that black and white thinking or the all or nothing around food. I hear this a lot. If I eat a cookie, I'm going to eat the whole bag. And yeah, that makes sense based on what we've talked about—the physiological cravings that you've had. If you haven't been eating cookies and suddenly you have a cookie, you might have the thought, "Well, I may as well eat the whole bag because I've blown it." Or again, physiologically, you've been missing those cookies; they taste really good. Or when you're in diet mode, it's like, "Well, I'm not going to eat cookies again I've ever blown (laughs) it, and so tomorrow. Right, (laughs) so then you eat them, and then you think, "Well, I'll just, you know, I'll start over tomorrow." What we know and what works—it takes time and it takes a lot of practice is learning how to eat those foods in moderation. And that is the goal. And that seems so far-fetched in most of my clients. Like, no way, that'll never happen. I can never do that. But I've seen it over and over and over again. is learning how to eat them in moderation through types of exposures to those foods. And one of the things I usually recommend is, let's say, for example, cookies is one of your things, then a good way to do that is to Plan that into your week and let's say on Tuesdays and Fridays, you plan in one of those trigger foods, one of those challenging foods and you go, don't keep them at home initially. because Initially, you're not going to have control over them, but to go out, say enlist a friend or a partner or a loved one, say, okay, we're going to go to X place, you know, the bakery and we're going to eat up cookie together. And I'm going to process how I'm feeling about it. And then we're going to have a distracting activity afterwards so that you're in a contained setting. You're probably not going to overeat Mm -hmm. a lot of cookies in a restaurant or bakery because most people that I work with are going to be too embarrassed to order that. Make sure that you spend some time processing. And that's how I recommend doing it. And I can vouch for that because when I was so focused on what I was doing I was training for karate and trying to be fit and all that kind of stuff my thing was chocolate cake which I never allowed myself to have except on my birthday and then it was like well you know it's birthday week so I gotta have the chocolate cake all week because I'm not gonna have it anymore this year but now since I've practiced some of those things you just mentioned and it did take time now there can be chocolate cake in the house and I might look at it and think oh I want a piece of cake and then I think And maybe I do. And if I do, I have a piece. But then other days I might walk by and go, nah, that doesn't sound good. That took a long time. And that's the point, right? It took a long time. It took a lot of practice. And that sounds like now you're more of an intuitive eater. Right. Uh, Which, again, didn't happen overnight. No, it didn't. Right. And so that's (laughs) where it takes a lot of trust in this process Mm -hmm. to really, it's just like, you know, learning a new language or a new skill. It takes a lot of trust in the process. And you aren't going to do it perfectly. You are going to slip. And that's why I like to look at the difference between the old way of thinking, which is probably where a lot of people are now, is I've already blown it. I may as well just keep going. But this is, instead of a full-on blown it, it's more of a slip. And mm-hmm. when you look at these as sort of opportunities for growth, what did I learn about this? If I slip, well, I can get back on track. I don't have to keep going. I have a choice now. Mm-hmm. And again, that takes time. And that's where relapse prevention is really key in all of this is setting up a program for yourself for success. And I talk about that a lot in my book. How do we Mm -hmm. do this for the long term? And part of that is having a lot of support, having people in your life that understand what you're going through and that you've been honest and open with so they can be there for you when you need them. You can't do this in isolation. Tell us a little bit about your experience with long-term success in treatment. Well, the good news is it's possible. And I look at all the people that I've worked with over the years. The main criteria for long-term success is persistence. Keep at it. You know, you get up and a lot of people that are probably listening to this are pretty good at that and other aspects of their lives. Right. So it's practice, persistence, and you have to keep doing it over and over again, just like putting a marble down the sand. You're not going to get a groove. There's a Sandhill, you're not going to get a groove in the sand until the marble has been run down it many, many times. But if you are in willingness, and I don't even mean you have to want to do it, you have to be willing to be willing to be willing to be willing to take the step, the first step, and to keep at it. I think that's the thing too: keep at it and see it through to the end, mm-hmm. because. I've seen people and know you've seen people that maybe get halfway through this process and think, I'm doing better. I'm good now. But they're not fully recovered. They haven't totally dealt with those issues. And so maybe they stop being persistent, stop working on it, stop working with their professionals, their team, and those things come back. It's a long process, but it's worthwhile. And if you stick with it, you will succeed. But I think that's a hard thing, too, to acknowledge that it is a long process to yourself. But then when you also get family members and friends saying, Why are you still going to the therapist? Why are you still going to your dietitian? You're not doing those behaviors anymore. So I think that gets hard to combat, too. And that's where I really feel that education of the family member is critical. That would mean, let's say you are seeing a therapist, you are seeing a dietitian, be sure that you're loved ones are involved they may come in for a session or i mean if you want them to if they're a very important part of your support system and explaining to them this is what i've done over and over and over again to the spouse to the loved one this is going to take time this is not a quick fix keep encouraging and even to encourage the loved one who's suffering to keep going back because you in your head might be thinking well it's not going to work for me and i hear that so often. It won't work for me, it may not work for someone else. That's real thinking, but the only way to combat it is to keep going back. I think eventually, if you continue and believe in yourself and believe in the process, then you get to a point where you can advocate for yourself regardless of who's saying, why are you doing this? Exactly. You can say, you know what, this is something I need to do for me, and I know I'm doing the right thing. But that's where you aren't there in the very beginning. <laughs> no, so you're right. The exactly. support yeah. of other people to encourage you to say, yeah lean on them so they can give you that encouragement otherwise you're going to go right back into the old behaviors yes tell us a little bit about two things tell us about your wellness group and then after we talk about that i want to talk about your book that sounds exciting (laughs) i like to grow things that's kind of part of my life story and so we've started a new group in Greenville, South Carolina. We also offer virtual services across the state and some even in Georgia because I've got a couple of clinicians that are licensed in Georgia as well. We have individual counseling. We have a dietitian. We have a psychiatrist coming on board. So that's very exciting. So we have a full team of treatment providers. And then, of course, I'm of overseeing everything, which I like to do, and we stack our cases together, and it's a great team. So, I've got Rachel Dower here and Allison Walters, who's a dietician, super enthusiastic, loves working with binge eating. In fact, they both have experience working with binge eating, and then the psychiatrist is coming on board in a few weeks, so we're excited about that. We offer a program called SEEK, which is specifically designed for people with emotional and binge eating. The acronym is Solving Emotional and Binge Eating with Kindness. A lot of these strategies that I've talked about are offered, and it's a co- co-led by the dietitian Allison and Rachel. And if you're not able to join in person, it's also available virtually. We have a HIPAA compliant, which means completely confidential virtual, where it looks like you're in the group. And... Everybody's pictures are displayed. We really want to make it accessible to everyone. Tell us your web address. I'll put it on On our website as well, but tell us your web address. Sure. It's www.RileyWellnessGroup.com. So that would be a good way for people to get in touch and find out information on any of those things. Absolutely. absolutely. And check out a little bit of bio on each of those people. Absolutely. I'm really fortunate to have found this team. They actually found me. That's the beauty of having been in the field for so many years is Mm -hmm. that I get these phone calls from people that they move into Greenville. Rachel recently moved here from Atlanta. She used to work at the Renfrew Center in Atlanta. And next thing I know, we're working together, and it's a great partnership. Tell us also about your book that's coming out. So the book is a result of the last year and a half after I'd left the high-powered role of running a treatment center. I decided I was going to take my own advice and slow my life down a little bit and spend some time in nature and spend some time getting in touch with my authentic values and what gives my life meaning. So as a result, I was doing some consulting and I started doing some work for a wellness center up in North Carolina and What had happened was they were seeing a lot of people coming there for weight loss. They were very progressive leaders, and they identified that a large percentage of them had binge eating. So I started designing a program for them, and I did design it, a curriculum, and then started doing workshops up there for this population and realized, again, that I just thought, well... Now I need to write a book. I've always wanted to write a book. I love writing. So I decided, because I'm someone, once I make the decision, I go ahead and do it. And fortunately this year, I made the time and I had the time. And so I I wrote a book. It's called Breakthrough Binge Eating, The Simple Solution to Ending Your Struggles with Food and Your Body. It is going to be available on August 29th. You can find it on my website. If you go to my website and go across the top bar, it says Mm book, and you can actually order. I like to think of it as... The culmination of all of my years of experience working with Mm these individuals with binge eating, compulsive eating, overeating, my own personal experience with recovering from binge eating. But what really makes this book special is I also address the companion behaviors, again all those other numbing out behaviors that we're turning to in our society such as drinking and shopping and overdoing it and trying to be perfect and all of our body stuff and So it really addresses all of that, and it gives you a lot of hands-on tools that are simple. I'm not saying the solution is easy, but they're simple tools, and a lot of the kinds of things I've talked about, which is managing stress, simple strategies for real time, that type of thing, the exercise, the movement pieces in there. Again, I like to think of it as something that's unique that's out there that's never been done before. Now, is it only available on your website or is it on like, Amazon? No, I've decided, I did some research and decided that the best way to start is to make it available just through my own website. And it's available as an ebook. That makes it, well, first of all it's very green, <laughs> and it's easy access for you, and yeah. I don't have a middleman, because I tend to be an entrepreneur, so mm-hmm. I want to do it myself and see how that goes. wanted to get it out there as quickly as I could, because that was important to me. So you just go to my website, click on the book, and there it is. And again, if you click on it now, you'll get it, you'll have it in your inbox on August 29th. Wow, that's yeah. great. Yeah, so... Very so everybody go check that out. Everybody check it out. <laughs> Any closing thoughts before we wrap it up? Well, I think it's really important as you look at healing yourself from this disorder, that this is a gift that you're going to give yourself. That wherever you are in this process, whether you're a woman who's in her 60s or 30s or 40s, it's never too late. And then something mm-hmm. people think, oh, it's too late, you know, yeah. or I don't have the time or let me put this off. I really encourage you to do it now. Don't waste any more time because this is the most important thing you can do for yourself. And if you, let's say, for example, you have children or you're someone who is potentially a role model or just a mentor, this is something that you can model to them. It's a gift that you'll be giving society, kind of like a pay it forward thing, because the more you heal yourself, then the better off our whole society is going to be. But the main thing right now is to think about you first. And probably for a lot of you, this is the first time in your lives you've thought about that. And you may even think it's selfish. And that's a common occurrence. I hear that a lot. But really, it's the best thing you could do for yourself and for the community at large. That's some good reminders there. Beth, I thank you for being here today. And I appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. We look forward to reading your book. Thank you, Rachel. Thank you for joining us today. I hope that you'll check out our website for some additional resources, including, again, Beth's book and a link to her wellness group. So go check it out on www.wholehearterecovery.podbean.com. See you next time.